0: Could there be any two people more different than Alexei Navalny, the jailed opposition leader, and Nikolai Patrushev, the guy who, well, on some level, probably put him there? Well, I want to look at some recent uh, programmatic statements by both of them, for their own value and for what they actually say, but also perhaps to draw some similarities between them as well. (laughs) Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to My View of Russia in Moscow Shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company Conductor. So just over a week ago, Alexei Navalny, obviously from behind bars, issued a 10-point questionnaire the idea is that he thinks that key politicians, public figures, journalists, activists and such like ought to answer these ten questions, or more to the point, be expected to answer these ten questions, in the name of essentially establishing some kind of baseline for general discussion. To identify, you know, who people should be taking seriously, but also to try and make the the public debate amongst anti-Putin figures maybe a little bit less toxic but certainly less uh, chaotic and his 10 questions it's quite interesting and on some level they're very logical but in other cases they give a sense a shape already of how he sees what should be done for next year's presidential elections so first of all you know is the election important to you Well, I mean, it's a bit of a no-brainer. If anyone says no, then, frankly, one shouldn't be thinking really about them contributing to the discussion about next year's elections. It's worth noting that Navalny also answered the questions. Well, kind of answered the questions, but I'll come to that. And he himself said, surprisingly enough, yes. Do you have a clear strategy? Well, he said no, but he promised that he would have a clear strategy by some point in January. So Fair enough. Number three, do you allow the possibility of boycotting the elections under certain circumstances? And he himself says yes, and that seems logical enough. I'll, I'll come on to potential strategies at the end, but I mean, that, that is one of the obvious ones. Given that the opposition can't really deny Putin a win, what they can do is to try and deny him the legitimacy of a large turnout. Do you allow voting for any candidate except Putin? as a strategy. Well, he says yes, and that seems fair enough. But again, I think we'll actually see that, I mean, apart from the obvious things that, you know, if it was, let's say, Putin versus Kadyrov, or Putin versus Nikolai Patroshev, for example, I don't think that Navalny would necessarily be uh, agitating on their behalf. But nonetheless, okay, so this idea of an anyone but Putin candidate, which would seem to allow for a very broad coalition, in opposition to Putin. Though, as we'll see later, there are caveats there. Question five is, do you allow the possibility of appointing a single opposition candidate and consolidating all campaign efforts around that candidate? And again, he himself says yes. Now, were one being totally cynical, one would think, oh, but does he think of himself? Well, he's not really in the running. But then we have question six. Can one of the following people be that single opposition candidate? And he names, I mean, some who are clearly, one would think, non-starters, like uh, Zyuganov of the Communists, Lutsky of the Liberal Democrats. Interestingly, uh, Ksenia Sobchak, the sort of halfway between socialite and political commentator, more often socialite these days than the other. Alexei Venediktov, the uh, Liberal head of ECHO Moskvy Radio, whom, let's be honest, Navalny has something of a bee in his bonnet ever since Venediktov supported electronic voting, and also other liberal politicians, including Grigory Yavlinsky of the Yabloka Party, liberal Yabloka Party, or Yevgeny Roisman, who had been mayor of Yekaterinburg, and again, they're very definitely a thorn in the Kremlin's side. So, you know, he's presenting a, a bunch of people ranging from the deeply implausible to the seemingly plausible, the interesting thing is that he himself says that he would not support any of them. So the interesting thing is, on the one hand, we have the the idea of voting for any candidate except Putin, but at the same time, if there's going to be an actual opposition candidate, none of them actually meet the uh, needs, which raises the question, and this is something that we will have to wait and see, who does Navalny think that single opposition candidate could be? What did you do during the 2018 election? Vote boycotter would rather not answer. He himself obviously was supporting the boycott. Is an online presence alone enough for running a presidential campaign in 2024? He says no, and I think he's right there, even though it may well be that online is pretty much the only way it can be run. Is it permissible to pay for blogger and influencer political advertising as part of the campaign? He doesn't actually answer this one. And are you ready to make full use of your YouTube channel during the election campaign? Strangely specific on the platform. Anyway, he says yes. So the idea is that he thinks that a whole variety of different uh, public figures ought to be invited or encouraged to precisely answer these questions to provide that kind of baseline. And he suggests that the editor-in-chief of doge TV, uh, the now rather peripatetic uh, anti-Kremlin opposition TV news channel, Tikon Ziatka, and also Galina Timchenka, the publisher of Medusa, they ought to you know, basically interview all, all the key figures. Now, his list of, of, of key figures is really quite an interesting one, because obviously it does include what one might think of as clear opposition political candidates or political leaders and figures, like Vladimir Milov, for example, Mikhail Kordakovsky. I suppose we can throw Garry Kasparov in there, although I don't really think he has any kind of real constituency these days. There are journalists like Yulia Latinina, for example, and sort of journalist writers like Mikhail Zigar. There's people from, obviously, his own team. Um, Leonid Volkov, uh, sort of clear example, Maria Pevchik. And then there's a whole variety of other figures, including, I mean, sort of, say, Evgeny Chichvarkin, who is a London-based entrepreneur, mini maybe maybe i'm not sure um someone interestingly alexander nevzorov who actually was a great supporter of putin's until he fell out with him over the whole business of annexing crimea and then and since and i think has now become a ukrainian citizen and valery salovey um Oh, the, the, uh, I would say the, the, sort of the, the academic and uh, publicist who really has become best known for the fact that for years now he has been predicting that Putin has one fatal disease or another and is going to be dead within six months. I suppose you know, someday he'll, he may be right. Anyway, so you know, it's an interestingly sort of broad-based array of people. However, in some ways it, it's more interesting for who it does not include. First of all, we don't have people like—I mean, he's largely dropped off from view. Sergei Udaltsov, the former sort of leftist firebrand, but generally, you know, I think actually one one can say that these are all on the politically liberal, but in some cases, I would say economically more conservative line of things. There aren't any real oligarchs. I mean, given that, look, this is just a wish list. Navalny has no opportunity to actually compel any of these people to talk. So it's quite interesting that he doesn't, for example, include any of the oligarchs, even the, the, the more liberal sort, the, more, the, the ones who are actually already seeking to extricate themselves. He doesn't include them on their list either. But nor is there any sign of people like Igor Girkin, Strelkov, or the other ultra-nationalist critics of the Putin regime. And so already we have, in some ways, a sense that when he talks about the key public figures, actually he means the key public figures of a certain kind. So already, in effect, we have an attempt to identify good Russians as opposed to bad ones. To identify them not just in terms of they are opposed to the regime, but they are the right kind of opposition to the regime, and then you know presenting them with this ten-point questionnaire as a way of further, for want of a better word, triage. So, what what broader points can can one make for this? Well, first of all, I mean, very much to his credit, and very impressively, Navalny is still determined to be a force in Russian politics, even from inside correctional colony IK-6 Milikova, and you know, that's that's good for him. Um, genuinely, it's, it's it's impressive, and it demonstrates, I think, you know, the whole approach that he took when he decided to go back to Russia, knowing full well that he was likely, well, almost certainly, to be arrested it's that sense of ultimately you cannot have real traction over over russia from outside the country though ironically the overwhelming majority of the people on this list are um and instead that you know he's willing to put his own skin in the game but to continue to be a factor secondly he recognizes the sterility of the usual liberal on liberal or opposition on opposition rows that time and time and time again have undermined any attempts to actually mobilize seriously against the Kremlin. And this is something that Navalny was was very good at and I think did a really important task before the, the turn against the opposition and essentially the elimination of, of, of his movement. But nonetheless, the attempt to, first of all, reach out beyond Moscow, cosmopolitan middle classes there, to reach out beyond their concerns and also to try to connect with the... The very real concerns of ordinary Russians that, frankly, many of Navalny's uh, peers, shall we say, who had tried to become opposition leaders, tended to not just neglect, but also actually to deride. You know, because basically the the concerns of non-Muscovites were were deemed to be secondary. So, you know, he's clearly trying to, to make sure that there can be a real coalition building. Nonetheless, there there is this contradiction. How far do you accept a notion of, look, everyone is, is, is a viable candidate other than Putin? You know, all versus Putin makes sense. And if so, then frankly, surely one should be willing to stomach the idea of pretty much anyone standing. So that... After all, let's not forget that at the time of the Prigozhin mutiny, Mikhail Khodorkovsky was essentially saying not that Prigozhin was was a good chap, but nonetheless that in some ways actually people should be rooting for him precisely because of the damage that he, he would do to the Kremlin. As is, it seems that even Navalny cannot rid himself of old, whether it's jealousies or whether it's rancors, so people like Venediktov, Roisman and Yavlinsky, who one would think would be entirely plausible candidates, nonetheless seem to be sort of compromised in his book. And this makes it so clear how difficult it will be to come up with any kind of a meaningful strategy for 2024 that will really have an effect. And in some ways, arguably, it may well be that the real strategy is just to keep... The embers of opposition to the Kremlin still capable of at some point being being blown into a proper fire because a boycott. Well, look, yes, fair enough. It it may well help deny Putin that full legitimacy. Uh, but when it comes down to it, really, that means you're wasting your vote, and especially in an era of all kinds of ballot box stuffing, especially using the electronic votes, which are very, very open to, to being abused. In some ways, it's actually a lot easier for the state to reallocate a boycott vote rather than an actual vote. So, you know, one could ask you know, whether or not a boycott really is a powerful thing. Is it that instead that you really want to find a good candidate? And if so, is someone of the appropriate, the requisite ideological purity actually ever going to get onto the ballot? Or will the state make damn sure that they don't? I'm inclined to suspect that that'll be the case. So maybe it is that what you have to do is hold your nose and support a bad candidate. Not because they're going to beat Putin. So in some ways you don't really have to care too much about how bad they are up to a point but precisely because you know the idea is to find someone who has the most chance of causing trouble for for the kremlin look let's be honest about this i mean this is my usual point about russian elections some people say russian elections don't matter i would disagree the point about russian elections is not what the result will be the result will be whatever the kremlin has decided however the real question about the importance of these elections is how much effort does the state, does the Kremlin, have to put in to being able to credibly claim the result it plans to? Because the more effort it puts in, the more money being paid out as sweeteners to different constituencies, and when it comes down to it, the more oppression of opposition candidates, the more ballot box stuffing and the like, then the less the legitimacy of the vote And the more chance there is for some kind of backlash, as, after all, we saw in 2011 and onwards with with the whole white-ribbon balotnaya protests. You might remember it was actually the perception that the parliamentary elections had been heavily rigged. In fact, they were probably no heavily rigged than any other ones. And then the prospect of Putin's return to the presidential elections that really drove the protest movement. So, in some ways, you're trying to force the state to overreach in that way it can be your recruiting sergeant for the protest movement. So actually I look I still can't help wondering if actually their best bet would be perversely enough to get behind Zyuganov, Gennady zyuganov the thoroughly dinosaurian, totally house trained leader of the Communist Party. Communist Party, after all, is bumping around oh, 11% overall, even if Zuganov gets substantially less than that. I think in the last Levada poll, he, he was on 3%. But that 3% was still higher than any other non-state candidate. So, you know, if they supported Zyuganov, bizarre and perverse though it would seem, first of all, they're supporting a candidate, you know, a candidate who's most likely to actually discomfort Putin a little, only a little. Secondly, it would actually mean that the Kremlin, in order to defuse this threat, would actually have to turn all the more directly against the Communist Party, which is, after all, you've got to remember, the last real independent political machine outside United Russia left inside the country. And, you know, it might well exacerbate existing tensions between some people within the Communist Party and the Kremlin. So it, it might actually be an entertainingly Machiavellian approach. Again, maybe it's easy for me to say so because I haven't got the same skin in the game as a Navalny or any of the other people sort of in, in his movement. But still, that strikes me as, as the most sort of Machiavellian one and also on a purely human level. I can just imagine just how horrified Zyuganov would be by the thought of people like Navalny backing him, which I can't help but think that it, you know, that's also quite entertaining. But so, you know, this, this is really sort of the situation we're in. And to me, I would wonder if, in fact, the real focus of opposition efforts ought not to be on the election itself. Because, as I said, that's that's a done deal. But rather to, in some ways, use the election, use people's perceptions of what's going on, again, as an opportunity to agitate on either specific issues, or else, generally speaking, to try and be, prepare themselves to capitalise on discontent at the outcome, particularly given that it does look as if the Kremlin is determined, that in order to show unity at a time of war, it needs to give Putin an unprecedented 80% victory. Now look, according to Levada, the Levada Center's polling certainly as of September, about 18% of Russians said that they would be willing to take part in some kind of protest. And that's up from uh, 14% in May. So look, it is not impossible. Again, not that they can raise a movement that's going to sort of sweep its way into the central Moscow and storm the Kremlin. But nonetheless, elections are intrinsically destabilizing moments for any regime, including an authoritarian one that is intending to stage manage it. If you are going to go through the hassle of performatively cosplaying a democratic process for the legitimating advantage, you do create, necessarily, some spaces in which critical voices can sometimes be heard, in inconvenient issues can be raised and discussed, and in a very, very small and simplistic level, the state can be held to account. So, I think you know, we should realize that although the outcome may be entirely settled, nonetheless, next year's elections are going to provide an interesting little window of opportunity for some kind of opposition activity, which I think should be geared not to expect any great gains then, but precisely to maintain the, the spark of opposition, and maybe even spread it more, more generally. Whether or not Navalny's approach, one which is, as I said, very much still geared to the kind of, let's be honest, this is a list of the usual suspects. You know, there, was, there was no one really on, on this list as I looked through, I think with the possible exception of Nevzorov. Who I looked at and thought, "Gosh, that catches me by surprise." Um, you know so it, it is a question of whether or not the opposition can actually go go beyond their, their usual suspects, whether they can again tap into the very real discontents of ordinary Russians, whose concerns are much less about big picture geopolitics often, let alone the sort of you know the wider issue of the constitution of, 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 the, of the Russian state, but about things like Rising food prices, increasing trouble with mortgages, um, generally the the lending rate and such like, you know, these kind of nuts and bolts issues. Anyway, I will stop there. We'll have a quick break, and then we'll return to my man Nikolai Patroshev. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conducto which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare counterterrorism civil affairs and the like but you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com/inmoscowshadows and remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things russian and you can also follow me on twitter at markgalliotti or on facebook Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. So this is going to be rather more, I warn you, of a textual analysis. And specifically, it's an article that the Patrushev, Secretary of the Security Council, Eminence Grise, Hawk Extraordinaire, wrote for the magazine Razvedchik, Spy, which was then picked up uh, in in the, in the wider Russian press, but also printed in full on the Security Council website. And I will provide the usual link in the program notes. And there's, there's some chunks that I, I do think are actually worth actually quoting. So my apologies. You might want to sort of sit back and relax. And this came out on the 15th of September. So remember, this is pre the terrible events of Gaza, which actually has significance, which I'll come to. He starts. Humanity has entered a turning point, a new period in world history. This is not just about changing the world order, reformatting the system of international relations and the evolution of the doctrines and values that underlie the work world architecture. Today, deep, truly tectonic changes are taking place. Well, let no one call him understated. Before our eyes, the Western-centric colonial world order, which originated in the era of the Crusades and took shape during the great geographical discoveries, is undergoing a final breakdown. It was then that the foundations of the Western model of civilization, predatory in nature were laid, which has existed with some changes to the present day. This is actually really interestingly Soviet. I and mean, clearly there's a, a de-ideological dimension to it, because it's not saying, you know, compared with the glories of Marxism, Leninism, but the critique of the West, and as we'll see, particularly the critique of the West as as an essentially, exploitative order I mean is, is really something that actually could come out of any 1970s era Soviet textbook. In this model a narrow group of states built a pyramid establishing themselves at the top and giving them exclusive powers. He calls this a pyramid of parasitism. That's splendid. The essence of this system is simple Everyone who is on a lower tier must meekly and practically, free of charge, transfer upward part of their own resources. Material, financial, intellectual, human. In essence, we are dealing with a multi-level parasitic superstructure on a global scale. Now this is interesting because this is also a line that we've seen come out of Putin's mouth. And I suspect that means that, again, Patrushev or whoever Patrushev's speechwriters are essentially wrote it for, for the boss. This sense that actually what we are seeing in the world now is a war between the producers, people who actually have stuff, and obviously Russia regards itself as part of that because of oil and gas and such like, against the exploiters, the financiers and the capitalists, which are, of course, you know, what we're talking about with the, with the West. So again, this is, this is an interesting way of trying to basically align Russia with other parts of the world, and particularly we, we've seen this being played in Africa. And the language of that really would sort of speak to this, again, all the sort of the, the fact, and I'll come on to this later, you know, he talks about colonialism and the like. So, what happens? For the sake of global dominance, the West uses direct military influence, threats of force, privatisation of elites, colour revolutions, and encourages terrorism and extremism. Thus, the continued expansion of the North Atlantic Alliance actually provides the United States with the opportunity to absorb states and deprive them of their independence while defending their national interests. So again, th- this is an interesting thing, the degree to which patrushev cannot avoid thinking of NATO essentially as the America's Warsaw Pact. The idea that these are countries that are in total subordination, Which is an interesting one. Maybe he should raise, actually, with Viktor Orban of EU and NATO member state Hungary, who nonetheless went to Beijing and had a nice little powwow with Putin to talk about cooperation. I mean, actually, by Patrushe's own logic, we should be expecting the Americans to destabilise Orban tomorrow, or indeed for NATO tanks to start rolling across the border. Somehow, though, spoiler alert, I don't think that's going to happen. So it's not just about NATO's military power though. In the same row stands international terrorism which in its current form is a direct tool for promoting the influence of the Atlanticists. Almost all modern large terrorist groups were created, supplied and financed by western intelligence services carrying out the decisions of the political leaderships of their country. Now this is what I meant about the uh, the, the nature of timing because I said this this was in mid September and what 3 weeks later we had the, the terrible terrorist war, essentially, that was launched by Hamas on, on Israel. And clearly, Hamas is not, I think it's fair to say, under the political leadership of the West, but it's rather more tied to, oh gosh, Iran, one of Russia's sort of allies, come to that later, but also clearly a producer state, as, as he would think of it. He goes on. The schemes by which transnational organised crime operates today are also not new. England, France, Spain, Portugal and the USA have never hesitated to use the services of pirates and other bandits to achieve their political and economic goals. And all the loot, one way or another, ended up in the West. Well, obviously this is a subject that is close to my heart and look historically yes of course it's perfectly true these are all countries that in their time used privateers which is basically just state sanctioned pirates and and other such such instruments historically however if we look at the situation today i mean it's actually really very different you know which which is the country that did not only use cossacks often frankly convicted murderers who were given a choice of bringing new territories in Siberia under the reach of the Tsar, or the hangman's noose or the executioner's axe, but even today, frankly, make full use of everyone from hackers to smugglers. Well, I mean, clearly, it's actually Russia. And again, on one level, it's a a pretty banal observation to say that so much of what Patrashev actually is accusing the West of is precisely what, what Russia is involved with. But There is, I think, a a wider significance. He continues, the ideology of one's own superiority over other peoples and civilizations has been cultivated in Western societies for centuries, and it is still close to them. I'm not saying that's entirely wrong, but nonetheless, he continues, it is from this position that the West looks at Russia, fearing its greatness and power. Thirsting for its riches, Westerners have always sought to weaken our country and take possession of its resources. Therefore, the fact that with the start of a special military operation in Ukraine, a wave of Russophobia hit the West is not at all surprising. I think this is fascinating because it really does speak to a Russian, frankly, sort of insecurity. That means that precisely because they have so often felt at the peripheries of Europe, which is how they really identified the civilized world, that that sense that they are being overlooked, that sense that they are not being taken seriously, is a really, really neuralgic point. And therefore, almost in response to that, the Russians have to big up the degree to which they think they matter to to the West. You know, fearing its greatness and power, thirsting for its riches. Let's be perfectly honest. You know, if you want Russia's riches, you can do what we've always done and indeed what China is still doing. You can just buy those riches. Actually, it's a lot cheaper than trying any, anything else. You know, let's be honest. There is not an economic rationale to the current uh, Western well, direct economic and political war, proxy military war against Russia. You know, this is not about to mean that the the oil fields of Siberia are suddenly going to get controlled by the West. But, as I said, there is this, this Russian urge to try and say that this is why people think we matter. Why? Well, as he goes on, Russia is perceived by the West as a constant threat. After all, the dismantling of the colonial system began after the Second World War under the direct influence of the achievements and victories of the Soviet Union. Well... Not really. It's interesting to prove that Patrushev is no better a historian than his boss. I mean, yes, the great European empires were largely dismantled after the Second World War. But that was rather more of a factor because the European countries in question were absolutely exhausted. And because in many cases they had actually had to draw on... Colonial forces to defend themselves, and it was then very difficult to then actually sort of push them back into into subservience and not recognise the effects they'd done. And I'm particularly, I'm looking at India um, and the importance of, of India in, in in the British war effort. But also, one could say that to a degree of of what had happened in the, in the con- conflicts within different, you know, both occupied and and anti-occupation French forces in in North Africa. So, yes, historically, that's when it happened, but not because of the Soviet victories. And although the Soviet Union did indeed actively support anti-colonial regimes and movements in a lot of places, I mean, that was actually for entirely practical reasons. They were a useful weapon against the West. And Soviet anti-colonialist attitudes certainly didn't extend to making the Warsaw Pact an optional extra for Central Europe any more than it kept the Soviet Union back from invading Afghanistan in 1979 and remaining there as largely unwelcome guests for 10 years. It c- continues, In this respect, it should be remembered that military potential alone, even advanced nuclear missiles, is not enough to protect against Western geopolitical aggression. It is important to resist it in an organized manner in a large-scale battle for minds and hearts. Which, well, actually is true and is interesting. It is a point where he has been consistent in that he regards this as a struggle in which the Russian people have to be essentially brought up to speed on their responsibilities, on the fact that they are now at war, because those damn Russian people don't seem to realise that this is an existential struggle for Russia and that they should be putting all their efforts into supporting the war effort. They, for some reason, still don't get the message. He continues, Today the United States and Europe are spending enormous resources on searching for and educating so-called young democratic leaders in specialised educational centres who will then be used to organise coup d'etat. Where are these specialized educational centers. I mean, unless we're talking about Cambridge and Oxford, Harvard and Princeton, um, the only one, the only similar type educational center that I can think of is the good old Patrice Lumumba People's Friendship University in southwest Moscow. That's what it was used for precisely during the Soviet times. And To a degree, I mean, not in terms of organising coup d'etat necessarily, but certainly in terms of trying to create some kind of networks of of institutional elite actors, it's still used by Moscow for that purpose today. But of course, never mind, what Russia does has to be overlaid onto how the West is is meant to act, and nowhere is that more clear. When he continues, and clearly, this is is just excerpts, I really would encourage you to actually read the whole thing if you want a groan or a laugh. Anyway, he continues that, uh, having received a rebuff, the United States and its allies switched to tactics of destroying the security architecture that had developed over the years in the world. Ignoring the purposes and principles of the UN Charter, they strive to replace international law with a, quote, rules-based order that they themselves define. Now, why is this? US policy-making circles have convinced themselves of America's supposedly special messianic destiny to rule the world through a strong foreign policy without recognising anyone's interests. Though, as ever, who is at America's side in this nefarious quest? Cooperation with England is being intensified in order to use the potential of its intelligence services, technological advances, and integration of its military into current American operations. So here we have the dreaded Anglo-Saxons as ever. Um, And again, I mean, I'm I'm delighted to know that the Americans are are desperate for for British intelligence, technological advantages, and, and the military. But again, it's a sense of actually trying to present the west and the west basically means america as for want of a better word the insurgents the ones who are trying to break the the order instead of the ones who are trying to defend it and it's all about this kind of neo-colonial aspect. now look let me be brutally honest and my apologies to all of my american listeners you know, does in my opinion america have an exaggerated notion of its place in the world and a sense that it does have some kind of sort of you know grander mission Yes. However, one could just as easily say that, in fact, Russia clearly also has this, this messianic sense. And in particular, you know, Russia under Putin has this notion that Russia is a great power because that is its not just spiritual destiny, but its birthright, having saved civilization against the Mongols, against Napoleon, against Hitler, e- etc. At least America is indeed at the moment, the world's only superpower. So there is some kind of rationale for it to regard itself precisely as having some kind of special mission. Russia is not. But again, Russia is desperately trying to find some counterpart that it can more or less say, we're going to be like that. So often when they talk about what America does, when they talk about what America wants in their own perspective way, which is often deeply, deeply flawed, But nonetheless, they're actually using this as a way of saying, and therefore, this is what Russia should have. Because his view is essentially that we have this this great global struggle built around not just the the pragmatic interests of respective countries, but precisely about values and the the, the neo-colonial claims of the Anglo-Saxons and the West. Um, And what are we talking about? First of all, these are the ideas of globalism, or oh, the globalists, those, those dark, shadowy forces. Anyway, of globalism, the complete opposite of patriotism, which does not recognise the diversity of cultures and ways of life, and is designed to forcibly drive all countries and peoples under the banner of Western consumer civilization. Well, putting aside the fact that actually for a long time the Putin regime legitimated itself precisely by offering Russians Western consumer civilization and one would be hard-pressed to find a more Western city than Moscow. But putting that to one side, again, there's this sense that actually Russia is just simply pushing back. Russia is trying to maintain, in the name of patriotism, its own identity, its own freedom of of maneuver on the global scene against this hegemonic West that tries to constrain everything else. It's very, very striking the degree to which, we're in Putin's as well as in Patrushev's language, this sense of Russia as the defender is crucial. And defender also against what he calls the tired propaganda of false theories of gender diversity and the development and imposition of insane pseudo-ecological doctrines designed under the slogans of nature conservation to justify the need for a radical reduction in the human population. Patrashev, amongst the many conspiracy theories to which he subscribes, believes in this notion of the so-called golden billion, that there is some secret master plan to reduce the population of the world, currently just over 8 billion and counting, and bring it down to just 1 billion, precisely so that that uh, elite can essentially enjoy all the fruits of the globe. Absolutely no basis for it, of course, but... Never let that be said, it'll stop Patrushev. That is why it is important for the majority of humanity, who do not agree with the role assigned to them as the feed base of the West, to unite and put an end to neo-colonial hegemony, to finally remove their political, economic, social and cultural systems from the influence of Western so-called civilization. So essentially it is nations of the global south arise, you have nothing to lose but your chains. It is, again, a revolutionary doctrine, but framed in not positive senses, not this is the order which we want to build, so much as this is the order which we wish to resist. And again, this all, all this nonsense about neo-colonial hegemony. I mean, again, you know, the, 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 the notion that Russia is able to present its imperial war in Ukraine, as an anti-colonial operation, I mean, is is as revolting as it is toxic, but nonetheless, you know, it, it is clearly the, the part of the line because this way he hopes to create what we could call, shall we say, an axis of resistance. In other words, that by uniting countries, you know, particularly in but not exclusively in the global South, it is possible to actually build an alliance which can take on the West. And he said he calls this the backdrop of a tough confrontation between Russia and the collective West, the hot phase of which was the special operation in Ukraine. In other words, again, you know, he's 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 pushing this line that essentially Russia is involved in a global conflict. And as he puts it, Russia has become the centre of attraction for everyone who is ready to resist the parasitism of the West. Well, I mean, you know, he wishes but that is the whole point. He wishes. That is the idea that Russia can create for itself a role as a leader of the notionally disenfranchised. And how does he hope to do this? What resource can he rely upon? Is it the moral example of Russia? Is it the sense that Russia is the kind of you know, presents the kind of model that people want to follow, classic soft power? Or is it because Russia is just too powerful an ally for people to ignore? Well, of course, we all know that none of those are true. Instead, and another chunk, uh, uh, trust me, we're almost at the end, you won't have to hear Patricia's words much more. He says, The most important resource in countering the plans of modern colonialists is historical memory, which Westerners, despite their efforts, could not erase. People in all regions of the world remember centuries of brutal oppression, and no fable about the civilising mission of the white man can erase from them the horrors of English slavery, England also actually was the leading country in abolishing slavery but let's not forget about let's forget about that the atrocities of hitler's nazis and their henchmen so it's nice that actually we find ourselves juxtaposed directly with with the nazis they will not forget the belgians who cut off the limbs of the inhabitants of the congo as punishment for insufficient results in collecting rubber and the french and americans who over two centuries of inhuman robberies turned the flourishing island of haiti into a giant slum Well, look, I mean, I'm not for a moment going to sit here and provide some kind of encomium in support of of colonialism, let alone slavery, and certainly let alone the atrocities of Hitler's Nazis. But the point is, again, first of all, there is uh, a deeply discreditable attempt to basically try and link everything with the Nazis. When you actually have to turn to Hitler for your... uh, justifying principle and you're not actually talking about fascism, then in some ways you, you know that you really your answer is, your, your argument is pretty dodgy. But more to the point, yeah, I mean actually much of this is, is true. Perhaps a little overstated and one-sided, but true. However, if we are going to basically believe that the sins of fathers will be visited upon the present day, where in this whole debate are the horrors of the Gulag? Of the Holodomor, the deliberate uh, starvation of the Ukrainian people in the 1930s. Or even if the, the whole point is, well, that's just people within the Soviet Union, uh, as was, what about. Yeah, what about ism? What about Russian imperial savagery in its expansion eastwards, which include things like that, the massacre of Georg Tepe? in 1881, where General Skobilev deliberately massacred thousands of Turkmen, precisely to teach them a lesson so that they would not rise up against the Russians again. You know, it is not as though Russia has the, the most uh, kind and gentle of histories. Patrushev concludes... It is obvious that in the foreseeable future, the United States will have to come to terms with the role as just one of the poles of a multipolar world. And Europe, which has agreed to become an American vassal, will still have to work hard to gain geopolitical independence. Well, again, look, there's some truth in that. I mean, I think one, one can wonder how long actually the United States will be the only global superpower and whether or not we are seeing the rise of a multipolar world. But the idea that this is necessarily going to be Russians to, to Russia's advantage is actually questionable. So, look, having inflicted on you, patrushev's meanderings, what, I, what do I actually think are, are the points to be drawn from this? Well, first of all, this is, in my opinion, the clearest and quite possibly the most rabid statement, I think, of the new line, that not just Patroshev, but Putin himself actually are now claiming. I mean, yes, of course, it's in part intended to try and build some kind of alliance in the global south. But it is also in order to basically present this as a crucial struggle for the future of Russia and the future of the world, indeed. And again, attempting to tell Russians that once again, it is their role to, in effect, save the world, this time from the Americans. And as such, and this is the second point, the thing that strikes me is, this is not a war, this is not a struggle. This is a crusade, this is a jihad. There's absolutely no real sense in what Patrushev's saying, and this obviously fits in with, with other statements and, and indeed the actual policies, of room for compromise. It is basically in which there is a, an enemy which is fundamentally committed to our destruction, and indeed the recreation of the whole world into a... a Well, I'm I'm inclined to think back of the sort of closing image from George Orwell's 1984 of a boot stamping on a face forever. And that has to be destroyed. There is no room for anything else. That's an incredibly dangerous kind of last option. Now, again, I, I really don't want to overplay this Ultimately, particularly Putin is, I think, pragmatic. Putin's interested in his own survival. He's not someone who's willing to see the world burn just for the sake of an idea. And if he absolutely has to, he will make whatever compromises are needed, again, in the interest of his own survival. But the, the interesting thing is here is that his actual options will begin to become constrained by his rhetoric and the degree to which actually he sets himself up. He creates these Situations in which actually certain compromises will actually be that much more dangerous and expensive for him. So this is why I'm, I'm concerned. It's easy just to write this off as just toxic ramblings from an old man whose time has gone. But the point is that these toxic ramblings do have political impact. Thirdly, I mean, this attempt to try and mobilise the rest against the West. I mean, I think that, obviously it's having some success, but what per Patrushev and indeed Putin are clearly unwilling or unable to accept is that Russia is not this centre of attraction. Rather it is trying to just simply take advantage of existing and in some cases entirely legitimate concerns and disputes that other countries have with the West or with the United States or indeed existing historical beefs. I mean, the thing is, you know, if you're in Africa, after all, your experience of colonialism has been basically by Europeans in shorts and pith helmets rather than Russians. And it's much easier to to see the language of anti-colonialism mobilized against Europe. However, ultimately, none of this creates any kind of affection for or alliance with Russia. When particularly in Africa we see Russian flags being waved during coups and protests they're not actually saying we would like to be more like the Russian Federation. We think that actually the Russian constitution has a lot of good points going for it or anything like that. No, of course not. It's just that that is in some ways a a statement of uh, anti-westernness. It is trying to basically be blasphemous, shall we say, rather than anything else. Russia does not have allies. Russia does not have soft power. Russia does not offer any kind of positive model. And all it has is all the friendship that it can buy. Countries will happily support the Russians when it is in their interests, when it means that, like the Indians, they can buy deeply discounted uh, energy, or whether other countries can get, you know, Wagner mercenaries to do their dirty work or whatever. But that is it. That is the point, that it's only up to the point where it's actually in their advantage. Fourthly, I mean, again, this this may be an obvious point to make, but it's astonishing just how, not just tone deaf Patrushev's words are, but also just how determined he is not to look in the mirror. Whether we're talking about the colonial heritage and the degree to which that's still, I mean, I don't really see the Russian Federation as an empire these days, but nonetheless, it is clearly built on the bones of empire. The use of criminality uh, as a tool of of statecraft. Very much definitely a a Russian rather than Western policy at the moment. And indeed the use of force. Look, has the West engaged itself in wars, some of which one could question the the validity of? Yes, of course. But at present, for Russia, while it is fighting this aggressive invasion in Ukraine, to criticise the West as uniquely willing to use force in the further of its own interests, is quite an astonishing statement. And then finally, I mean, it is quite astonishing just how much patrushev is clearly informed not by all those intelligence briefs that reach his desk and so forth, but by this mishmash of conspiracy theory, paranoia, whataboutism, and wishful thinking. I've always grappled with this issue of how smart Patrushev is. Some people say he's really not smart at all, some people say he's whip-smart. And I think I'm beginning to come to the feeling that he is, shall we say, tactically smart and strategically dumb. I mean, he clearly is not a fool, he clearly works hard and so forth. But either he is the most cynical man in Moscow, already arguably a world capital of cynicism, or he really does believe a vast amount of... Toxic nonsense. And I think that really, that that latter is indeed the case, that he believes this stuff. And therefore, in some ways, it's actually a metaphor for how the whole Putin regime works. That you can have a lot of smart people and a lot of good data and a lot of great analysis. But none of it really works if it is either excluded by or filtered through all these various you know, un, unreliable and implausible notions of the world. And whether that's the assumption that Ukrainians aren't going to fight for their own sovereignty, whether it's the apparent belief that you can actually run an economy that is at once a mixed economy and a mobilized war economy and not expect this, this to overheat, I mean, or whatever. All sorts of things that many people within the system know better, but nonetheless don't actually end up shaping policy. And this is really what we're seeing from from Patrushev. So to conclude, I mean, I mentioned this point about actually trying to draw some some kind of comparisons with the perspectives of Navalny and Patrushev. And let me start with a caveat that um, I think Navalny is a much, much better person than Patrushev. Now, I know that is not the highest bar to vault, but nonetheless, you know, I, I think... When I draw these comparisons, I really don't want this to be taken as meaning somehow that I'm saying that Navalny is no better than Patrushev Very much not the case. Nonetheless, I think there are some points worth making. First of all, the way that actually both of them think that the current struggle, which is both within Russia and for Russia in the world, is not just about a specific battle, a specific war or a specific election, but a, a massively broader civilizational one. So that actually, there's this this, this sense that the world will pivot on on what happens. And that's the sort of thing which obviously helps give Navalny some of his charge to motivate himself in these extraordinary difficult circumstances. At the same time, they both appreciate that there is a need for an intellectual and philosophical basis for their struggle. It's not enough just simply to say, Russia must win for Patrushev, or Putin must lose for Navalny. It's actually about creating this wider sense of, what are we fighting for? So that is they both understand the importance of the moral as well as the pr- the practical in the conflicts in which they're engaged. And therefore, as a result, they're both trying to, in effect, shape the language and the concepts of these discussions. I mean, the interesting thing about Navalny's ten points is, yes, on one level, it is a very valid set of questions to actually help ensure that you know, there is some kind of common baseline for, for, for proper discussion. But at the same time, it is, both by the questions that are asked, but also by the specific array of individuals to whom those questions he thinks should be posed, an attempt to basically define what are the key issues, what are the key sort of lines in which we ought to be having this discussion, and who ought to be in this discussion. So, you know, meanwhile, Patrushev is trying to basically frame this as this, you know, existential struggle against Western neocolonialism, which means that by definition to challenge that is to be speaking up in favor of co- neocolonialism. So both of them, you know, actually in, in the ways that they are trying to create the, the intellectual basis for struggle, are also actually trying to limit the debate around it. And most crucially, neither of them really i would say accept any notion of compromise they both ultimately regard this as being a fight to the death and the interesting thing is in that context i don't see how either patrashev or navalny can hope to win in that absolute context i mean from patrashev there is a sense that basically russia breaks the western order or it is lost. Likewise for Navalny, it's Putin must be toppled by a certain collection of people or else Russia is lost. Now, the fact of the matter is that it's almost certain that there will be muddy compromises. That if Russia is to get anything positive out of the Ukraine war, and it's awful to talk about positive, but in in the sense of anything that it can honestly claim to be a victory, it will actually have to accept that it will get nothing like what it hoped to in the first case, and it will not do so in a way that will actually undermine the Western order, quite possibly it will strengthen it, because it will probably, as part of that, will also have to accept seeing Ukraine, or the majority of Ukraine joining NATO, joining the European Union, and such like, which, by Pantrushev's own language, would would actually be a massive civilizational defeat for, for Russia. And likewise, from Navalny's point of view, let's be perfectly honest, if someone is going to remove or replace Putin, it's not going to be him. It's not going to be Mikhail Khodorkovsky. It's probably going to be exactly a sort of slightly more moderate insider. It's going to be a Mishustin or a Sabyanin, or one of the other figures waiting in the wings who can reassure enough of the old elites but at the same time begin to actually broaden the basis of the regime's support, perhaps bring in limited liberalisation, certainly roll back the extreme totalitarian and militarising tendencies of people like, like Patrushev. You know, the interesting thing is this. Sorry, I keep using that phrase today, so my apologies for repetition. That in some ways it is the extremists, and in this respect, and in the best sense of the word, I'm using it for Navalny, who have the fire for battle. It is the shabby compromisers, though, who will probably win that battle. But we'll have to wait and see. Okay, I feel I need a shower now after immersing myself in Patrashev's thoughts so much, so I will end now, as ever. Thanks for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows, Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Gagliotti, or Facebook, Mark Gagliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.